Luke chapter 16. Jesus has been rebuking the Pharisees while at the same time warning the disciples about the danger of misusing resources. The danger of misusing resources. That's what we saw in the parable in, in chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, with the parable of the unrighteous, or, or I'm sorry, the, um, yeah, the unrighteous manager, the one who was uh, dishonest and ended up using his resources to accomplish good, to gain friends when his job was done. And the idea there was that we are to do the same thing, uh, not be dishonest in our, on our managing of God's resources, but rather do what he did at the end of his time right before his termination, which was to take the resources he had at his disposal and use them for the sake of gaining friends. Um, So, the danger of misusing resources. We can wrongly get the idea that how we use our resources doesn't matter to God. Or we can think that the accumulation of resources is actually a sign of God's blessing. And while the amount of resources can be a sign of God's blessing, it can also be a sign of God's disfavor. God could be giving those people over to the lusts of their mind, the lust of money. God could be giving them over to that. And so the, the accumulation of wealth could actually be a sign of God's disfavor. The point is that we can determine a person's relationship or, or we can't I should say, determine a person's relationship by the size of their bank account. And the teaching here in Luke 16, that this passage that we're going to look at beginning in verse 19, is a story about a rich man and a poor man. And it shows us how the material blessings of this life may mask a person's true relationship with God. That just because everything looks good in this life, and you may be full of, of, of money and someone else might not, it doesn't necessarily indicate a person's proper or improper relationship with God. Those things will be sorted out in the next life. And so Jesus moves from the beginning of chapter 16, the misuse of resources, to the end of chapter 16, the proper use of resources. How should we use our resources uh, that we have in this life? So let me begin reading in verse 19 and read to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. 
in order that He may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Material blessings in this world may mask a person's true relationship with God. And I think that's the primary point that Jesus is trying to make here in this teaching. But in order to understand this teaching, we need to begin by answering two questions. First, is this a parable? And secondly, what is Hades? And once we kind of get that groundwork laid, then we can actually dig into the, the parable itself or the, the teaching itself and, um, and go from there. So number one, is this a parable? Is this a parable or a historical event? Before, you, before I tell you what I think it is, I must say that it, it really doesn't affect how we take the elements of the teaching. So if at the end of my arguments here, you determine that it's a parable or if you determine that it's an historical event, either way it's not going to affect the point of the passage. So don't get lost in whether it's a parable or a historical event. But I do want to address that because it's not very clear from how uh, it begins. We still will see that a person's relationship with God must be settled in this lifetime and that it is irreversible in the next lifetime. Once we get to the next lifetime, there's no changing. Also, however you determine if this is a parable or not, should not change your understanding of the afterlife. Okay, How you understand Hades in this passage should not change how you view the afterlife because Jesus is not going to, I would suggest, He's not going to mislead people in a parable about the afterlife. He's not going to just make up some fantastical idea of what the afterlife might have if there, if there were one or something. Okay, so whatever he's saying about Hades, I think, is, is true. Um, and so let's, let's get into these two questions. First, is this a parable or a historical event? Some people argue that it's a real historical event. And the reason that they do is because, notice how it begins. Now, there was a rich man. It doesn't begin, the kingdom of heaven was like. That's what we tend to think when we see parables. Or, Jesus began speaking in parables. And that's clearly for us an indication, hey, this is a parable. You know, it's kind of like a, a, a light bulb goes off in our head. Uh, we, we see this as a parable. Yet the second reason that, that many argue that this is a real historical event is that Jesus never gives any names in His parables. If you, if you were to study all of Jesus' parables, you would find that He doesn't give any names to the characters in His parable except for this one. Okay, so, so if that's the case, if He's given a name to it, then it can't be a parable. It has to be a historical event. This would... If this were a parable, it would be the only time. Other people suggest that this is a parable, and this is what I think it is. Let me show you why. First, the audience. Who is listening to this parable? Well, look up to verse 14. You see uh, who Jesus has in His audience. He was Actually, look up to verse 1. 16, 1 says, Now He was saying to His disciples, so the disciples were there, and then verse 14, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at Him. So we have at least two groups of people there, probably a lot more, because by this time in His ministry, it's later on, closer to Jerusalem, 
uh, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more crowd he seems to attract. And so he likely is, is just mobbed by people, not just his disciples, not just the Pharisees, but just loads of people, believers and unbelievers as well. So the Pharisees are listening in. And that should help us to see how Jesus would teach when they are in His hearing. Listen to Mark 4.11 in light of this. And He was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Speaking to the disciples. It's been given to you. The mystery of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But those who are outside get everything in parables. So, When I'm speaking to you in private, and Jesus often does this, He gathers the disciples around and He stops speaking in parables. Instead, He speaks to them openly and clearly. And they love it. Like, we don't have to ask the questions. We don't have to try to figure out the code. But He says, when I'm in a big crowd, when there are unbelievers, in order to keep these mysteries hidden from them, I speak in parables so that you can be hearing, disciples, but the, but the, 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 the unbelievers... They will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. They will be ever hearing, but never understanding. That's why I speak in parables. Jesus said that in Mark 4.11. Now, obviously, we have to say, well, there were some exceptions to that. He did speak to the Pharisees openly. He would say things like, you wicked, uh, yeah, you, you vipers or open sepulchers, you open tombs, you open graves. You know, you, you guys are full of dead men's bones. You don't understand it. You don't believe the law. You don't love the law. You don't love God. God is not even your Father. Okay, so in some cases, He does speak openly to them. But it would not be uncommon. In fact, it would be most common when He would speak and when He would teach, when He's not directing the teaching at them specifically, uh, when He's doing it to a whole crowd, He would do it in parables. second reason I think that this is a parable the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, is because of the context. The previous five stories start in a similar way and are all parables. They begin in chapter 14 with verse 7. Verse 7 says, And he began speaking, chapter 14, verse 7, he began speaking a parable to the invited guest. Verse 8 says, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast. And he goes on to tell a story. Verse 16, But he said to them, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. Most people believe that that's a parable. Then chapter 15, there's these three famous parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And the reason we know they're parables is because of verse 3. Chapter 15, verse 3, So he told them this parable. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Chapter 16. Okay? Chapter 16 is the parable of the, rich, the unrighteous steward or the unrighteous manager. Does anyone think that this is not a parable. Okay, verse 16 seems to be a continuation of chapter or chapter 16 seems to be a continuation of chapter 15 and he says now he was also saying there was a rich man who had a manager. Not a historical event. Most people would see that as a parable, but notice how chapter 16 verse 1 begins this parable. There was a rich man. And then look at our text, 16:19. Now there was a rich man. So I'm saying based on how Jesus tends to speak to His audience that is, that is uh, full of unbelievers, he, he tends to speak in parables, and because of the context, just a string of parables that have gone on from chapter 14 all the way until now, He starts very similarly to how He starts the unrighteous manager parable. And then thirdly, 
the similarity with this previous parable. The previous parable of the unrighteous manager I mentioned in the introduction that was about the proper use of money. Use your money for the sake of gaining friends. Like When you get to the kingdom, you're going to have people waiting for you saying, thank you for using your resources so that I could be here. And now he's going to talk about the misuse of money here. That, that while this rich man had money, he didn't use it properly and didn't gain friends for himself in the next life. So, to the, the answer to the first question in my view is this is a parable. Okay, So what we're looking at is a parable. Uh, again, it's not going to change the meaning of the text. It's not going to change uh, how you should understand the application of it for us. Secondly, what is Hades? Look at verse 23. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. Other translations have, in hell, he lifted up his eyes and being in torment and saw Abraham far away. Uh, The other thing that you should notice is in verse 22, that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So we have these two locations that that these two men go to, one to Abraham's bosom, one to Hades. What is Hades? And we could add to that, what is Abraham's bosom? Well, the answer to this question, I would lean heavily on Dr. McCune's systematic theology. If you have a copy of it, it's, um, I would commend it to you. It is uh, very helpful with answering this question. Hades comes from the Greek word Hades. It's the New Testament equivalent of Sheol. So in the Old Testament, you know, we see Sheol is an open grave that God sees everything that's in Sheol. It's, it's this, uh, in the, Old Testament Hebrew, it's called Sheol. In the New Testament, it's called Hades. And so if you wanted to, just, if you wanted to, uh, to, to replace them in one place or the other, you could say either word and it would mean the same thing. Sheol and Hades. Let me give you several brief statements that will help us understand what Hades is. Number one, Hades is not final hell. Okay, so... Those translations that actually take the word Hades in verse 23 and put hell in there, I think are wrong. And the reason for that is Revelation 20, 14, and 15. If you want to look those up at some point, Revelation 20, 14, and 15. And there it says that Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. First, prior to that, verses 11 and 12 of Revelation 20, it will be emptied of its contents. Hades will be emptied of all the demons and unbelievers that are in there. And then all of Hades will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the final hell. So Hades is not hell. Number two, Hades is the place where the wicked went after death. Look at verse 23. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, that is, the rich man. The, the, previous, uh, the previous verse says, the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. So the wicked man, the rich man in this case, dies and is buried and he immediately is in Hades. That's where the wicked go after death. That's consistent with what the Old Testament says as well, that those who are wicked will go to Sheol. Okay, Hades, same idea. Number three. This one you might have to think about a little bit. Hades is a place where the righteous also go after death. Look at verse 23 again. Let me show you this. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. Okay, the reason I think that even the righteous in the Old Testament went there after death was partly because of this, but 
Also because in the Old Testament, remember that word that I said was in the Old Testament that's equivalent to this word in the New Testament, Sheol? Sheol in Genesis 37-35, Jacob says that he's going there. Job 14-13 recognizes that when he dies, he's going to Sheol. A believer. Hezekiah, a man of God, Isaiah 38-10 says the same thing. And so apparently this Hades is not hell. Okay, It is a place for the dead following the death of Old Testament saints. And so here's what I understand and again, following Dr. McCune um, is taking place here. Number, uh, number four. Before the resurrection of Christ, Hades contained two compartments. There was a lower compartment, which is where the rich man is in this passage. When he dies, he's buried. He goes to the lower part of Sheol. And if you read through the Old Testament, the lower part of Sheol or the lower part of Hades is this place where the wicked go. The upper part of Hades, or Sheol, is called Abraham's bosom, or paradise. So there's two compartments in Hades, and, and we, we gather that from a larger selection of Scriptures that we don't have time to look at right now. Number five, Hades is most likely located in the middle of this earth. Now, if it's not located in the middle of this earth, then it's either symbolic or it's just a state of mind. That there are a bunch of spirit beings that are just somewhere. and okay. But it seems to me that if you read through the text of the Old Testament that talk about Sheol and read through the New Testament text that talk about Hades, it seems to me that it's a real place and that people tend to go down to it. That they go down to Hades. And so very likely it's in the, the center of our earth. Number six. Hades is not purgatory. Okay, I'm going to tell you what happened to people in Hades. But, but for now, before we get there, it's not purgatory. It's not a temporary holding cell that demanded the prayers of living and dead saints to move a person out of there. There's no purging from Hades. What we're going to see in this passage is that once you get to the afterlife, there's no reversing it. There's no changing of your position. So this is not purgatory. Number seven... Hades is no longer occupied by any believers. Okay, so I said before the resurrection of Christ, there were two compartments. But after the resurrection of Christ, Christ came and emptied that upper compartment. What was the upper compartment that I say that was containing? Okay, it was Abraham's bosom, paradise. It was the Old Testament saints. Jesus emptied that at the resurrection. Apparently, some of these people even came back to life. Remember at the... At His resurrection, there are several Old Testament saints who came up from the grave. And now they live with, that is the Old Testament saints, they live as spirit beings in the third heaven with Jesus and their bodies will be resurrected finally after the millennial kingdom. Or, I'm sorry, after the, the, the tribulation before the millennial kingdom. So, so, Hades is no longer occupied by believers. Number eight. Hades will be completely emptied. So what, is Hades, what, did I, what do I think Hades contains right now? If all the saints, all paradise has been removed, what's left? Hades would be containing just the wicked. Both Old Testament wicked and, I'm suggesting, also New Testament wicked. When they die, they go to Hades. 
And they, they will be completely removed from there. The lower part of Hades, it will be emptied at the great white throne judgment. That great white throne judgment will follow the millennial kingdom. So, we are currently in the age of grace, the age of the church, and the next stage in history or in the future is the tribulation, seven years. Following the tribulation is the millennial kingdom which lasts for 1,000 years. At the end of that 1,000 years, Christ will resurrect everyone. Okay? Whoever has died in all of history, now several of the believers have already been resurrected, but, but there are others who haven't been. And all of the Old Testament wicked will be brought up to the great right throne judgment and will be judged there, brought out from Hades. And then all of those people will be judged, sent into the lake of fire forever, along with Hades itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. So, uh, there's a lot there, a lot of theology there that requires uh, more time of study than what I can give you in ten minutes. But if you'd like to read more about this, again, I commend to you Dr. McCune's third volume of a systematic theology chapter 61 uh, he gives more support than I have time I have time to give and he explains it better than I could as well so now let's get to the teaching of Jesus itself because what I want you to see here is I don't want you to get it lost in in what we've just said that it I think it is a parable and that Hades is a real place that contains the wicked and before Christ's resurrection also contained the righteous okay, don't get lost in all that and to miss the point of the text. Okay, that, that was all, I think, introductory and hopefully foundational for what is coming, but, I, but I, I want us to focus on the main part of the text. Okay, so let's, let's do that. Number one, money and possessions can mask a person's status before God in this lifetime. Money and possessions can mask a person's status before God in this lifetime. Verses 19 to 23. First thing we see is that in this life, comfort and abundance are not necessarily proportionate with God's favor. Do you know rich people that defy God? Are there any rich people in our world that defy God, that hate God, that are clearly unbelievers and happy about it? Okay. In this life, comfort and abundance are not necessarily proportionate with God's favor because we see this comfort of the rich man who turns out to be wicked. We see it in his clothing. He's dressed in purple. Purple was normally worn by royalty, kings, or by the extremely wealthy. And he's also wearing this fine linen, as it says in verse 19. Don't think of linen like he's wearing around bed sheets or something. Hey, this linen was probably his underclothes. So he's got a lot of money to spend, and so he even spends it on his underclothes. He's also his rich his riches and comfort is also seen in his food. The end of verse 19 says joyous living and splendor every day. He never had a want. He never had any unmet desire. He had plenty of food to spare according to verse 21 because the the poor man was longing to be fed by the scraps from his table. We also see his comfort and riches with his residence. He apparently had some considerable living accommodations because the poor man is sitting outside of his gate. We also see his riches in his funeral arrangements. Notice the rich man had a proper burial at the end of verse 22. The rich man also died and was buried. He had enough money in his estate to pay for a proper burial. And so we might think, well, he's rich. It must be a sign of God's blessing. We're going to see that that's what the Pharisees thought. 
And we could look at the other side of the coin, the torment of the poor man in this life, and think, well, God must be cursing him. He must be doing something wrong. You know, think back to Job and his friends, saying, Job, he must have done something. I mean, no, no one gets this kind of bad luck so much, so much all at once, unless you've done something wrong. It's some kind of karma that's coming back on you. You've done something, Job. Just admit it. You're a sinner. Job says, yeah, I, I'm not perfect, but... I'm righteous. Okay? Not, not in a proud way, but he's just saying, I've done nothing to deserve this. That's why it's so hard for me to understand what's going on. But we look at this poor man and think this might be a sign of God's disfavor. And we see it in his food. The poor man was longing to eat scraps from the table, verse 21 says. His clothing. This man doesn't explain his clothing specifically, but it does say that he's, he's just filled with sores. The end of verse 21. And the dogs are coming to lick these sores. These dogs probably are not house pets, but most likely wild animals that would have been uh, ravenous dogs. His residence was not anything like the rich man's. He was living outside the gate of the rich man. And notice his funeral arrangements or lack thereof. Verse, uh, verse 22, Now the poor man died. That's it. He died. See the the rich man down below at the end of verse 22? The rich man died and was buried. The poor man just died. No record of how he was buried. He very well could have been just thrown on the trash heap called Gehenna, which was just continually burning forever. Couldn't even pay to bury him. What Jesus wants us to see is that the rich man seems to have no regard for the poor man, which will become clear in the next life. So in this life, comfort and abundance are not necessarily proportionate with God's blessing on a person. That goes totally, flies in the face of the prosperity gospel. It says, hey, you just need to believe more. You know, God is always going to give you plenty of physical and material blessings. He's going to heal you. He's not going to give you any physical trouble as long as you have enough faith. Hey, that's not what Jesus is teaching here and that's not what He teaches anywhere else. God often does afflict His own children for their sake and for His glory. However, in the next life, comfort and abundance are exactly proportionate with God's favor of us. In the next life, we want to see comfort and blessing. If we have comfort and blessing, that's because God has favor for us. In this life, they're not necessarily the same. Notice the comfort of the poor man in the next life. Verse 22, The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, also known as paradise. Or Jesus says to the, the man on the cross, the thief on the cross with him, Today you will be with me in paradise. So the upper compartment of Hades. We see the comfort of the poor man, but also the torment of the rich man. The luxury of this life is replaced by the torment of eternal death. Verse 23, In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. Verse 24, I'm in, at the end of the verse, I'm agony. I'm in agony from this flame. Torment of the rich man. He experienced and would for all of eternity experience the unquenchable flame of Hades. What may have felt like and looked like to the people around him to be God's favor 
in this lifetime because, hey, he had all these great blessings. Material blessings was clearly a sign of actually God's disfavor, that God was not pleased with this man. So, God's... Our status before God can often be misinterpreted based on the amount of money and possessions we have. Number two... Once a person reaches the next life, his fate is irreversible. Once a person reaches the next life, his fate is irreversible. Verses 24 to 31. The rich man here pleads for himself and then he pleads for his brother. First, he pleads for himself. We learn several things about Hades in these three verses. Verse 24 reads, And he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. Hades is a place where there is an unquenchable flame for everyone who lives there. We also learn about Hades that memories from life on earth are not wiped away. He he didn't forget about his brothers, remember? He said, hey, can you send somebody to my brothers? And tell them. So apparently, you know, sometimes we think when we get to heaven, when people go to hell, it's going to be like the the slate's completely wiped clean. They're not going to remember anything from this former life because, hey, after all, if we're in heaven, you know, it might it might discourage us. You might shed a tear, and there are no tears in heaven. But but no, we actually do have memories of what happened here on this earth. We're going to remember our life. We're going to remember the grace that we received but we're going to remember it with a proper perspective. In hell, in Hades, and for eternal hell, people will remember what happened on earth. They will remember the missed opportunities. They will remember the times when it felt like God was punishing them on earth, when it felt like they had no chance, when it felt like the Gospel was far away from them, but they will still be judged for their sin. We also see that in lower Hades there is a permanent and irreversible separation from God. So he begs in verse 25, please send Lazarus, send this poor man to come and just take a little bit of water and dip it on my tongue and touch it to my tongue so I can have a little bit of relief. And this is what Abraham says to him in verse 25. Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and Lazarus his bad things, but now he is being comforted and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over here to you will not be able and those that, and that none may cross over from there to us. There is a permanent and irreversible separation from God that lower Hades is inescapable and inexhaustible. Without a break from torment, it is eternal. We also learn in the next section that a person in lower Hades is completely incapable of affecting change on earth. And we see this in his plea when he pleads for his brothers in verses 27-31. He pleads for his brothers. He can't actually affect any change on them even though he desires to see them respond to Christ in faith. He wants them to do it so that they won't receive the torment that He receives. He can't make any change. Verses 27-31, to He pleads for His brothers. I have five brothers. Please warn them. Abraham says no. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them follow the Old Testament Scriptures. 
Let them see the Messiah through the Old Testament Scriptures. And the rich man responds, verse 30, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. And Abraham says, it's not about someone raising from the dead. It's not about miracles. No one will come to Christ because of a miracle. If they can't come to Christ from the clear revelation of the Scriptures or the clear revelation of Jesus Himself, they will not come even if one of their own rises from the dead. Or if anyone rises from the dead. Okay? The rich man pleads for his brothers. Our money and possessions can mask our status before God in this lifetime. It can look like God is pouring out His favor on someone or pouring out His disfavor, but that's not necessarily the case. We see this great reversal here in Luke chapter 16. And once a person reaches the next life, his fate is irreversible. Material and possessions may mask a person's status or relationship with God. And I say may mask because there are several rich people who are in good good standing with God. So what I don't want you to hear or learn from this passage is all rich people are going to hell. That's not the case. Because in terms of human history, and I say this often, but in terms of human history and in terms of the rest of the world, we all are rich. And I know that we are all not going to hell. Okay. So And there are a lot lot more people that are richer than us that are faithful, God-loving people. And we can think of all sorts of examples from the Old Testament and the New Testament of people who were rich who went on to, to heaven, like David and Solomon and Joseph of Arimathea. Okay? We, we could just list a number of people. Mark, uh, Mark's family. Mark came from a rich family. And apparently Mark was a rich man himself. Okay, So there are lots of rich people um, uh, Philemon, you know, we could just number off a number of people. So it may mask. Sometimes we just can just broad brush all the people who have money and say they're all being blessed by God. Or we, as more discerning Christians, might say all rich people are not being blessed by God. They must be doing something wrong. But the truth is, is, is we can't make a judgment call on their relationship with God based on the amount of money they have. That's what I'm trying to say and that's what I think Jesus is saying in this passage. Now the Pharisees, I'm sure, were identifying with the rich man throughout this parable. Look at verse 14 again. They were lovers of money. And they were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at Him. Because Jesus is saying, use your wealth for the purpose of gaining eternal resources, ones that it will be good in the kingdom. But recognize, you can't serve both God and money. You have to choose. If you serve money, you're gonna, God's going to be, God's going to be a means to an end. He's going, you're going to use God as long as you can get more money. But if you serve God, then money will be a means to serve God. That's the way it ought to be. But the the, the Pharisees were lovers of money. And they, like the rich man, had Moses and the prophets, and yet they wanted more, didn't they? They were constantly asking Jesus, can you show us a sign? You know, if you really are the Messiah, show us a sign. And Jesus said, you don't need a sign. Okay, the signs have already been here. You've rejected them all. And in fact, 
Jesus would give them a few signs. The raising of Lazarus, the other Lazarus. Not this one, but the other Lazarus, the friend of Jesus. Many Pharisees were there, and what happens? They turned around and scoffed at Him and tried to figure out how they could, could stop His ministry. And Jesus would rise from the dead Himself. They had the Moses and the prophets, and they had the, the witness of a resurrection, and they still didn't believe. You see, the Pharisees were good at ignoring the Scriptures, except when it brought personal advantage. They had turned the Scriptures into a talisman or a lucky charm. They only used them when they were to their own advantage, not for God's purposes. So with that thought in mind, let me give you three observations that we can learn from this passage. Number one, the apparent injustices in this life will be sorted out in the next life. So what appeared to be disfavor for this poor man in this life turned out to be great favor on God. God was actually showing mercy to him and it was seen most clearly in the next life. And the same thing is true for you. The injustices that you faced today and that you will face in the remainder of your life will be sorted out in the next life. Now that does not mean that all people who suffer will go to heaven. Okay, that, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. That anybody who's poor is going to heaven. They're going to be traded the bad things for the good things. No, it is they, those who use their resources properly, whether they're poor or rich, they use them properly by using them to advance the kingdom, will be saved. They, they will be the ones who experience final salvation. Not because of those things, but, but because of the mercy of Jesus Christ. The apparent injustices in this life will be sorted out in the next. Number two, your heart follows your treasure. Whatever you value most will determine how you spend your life. If you value riches, notoriety, comfort, then you will live for those things in this life. But if you value God's Word and God's promises most, then you're going to live for them. Even if it means destitution, rejection, and even death. You will live for God's promises and God's purposes. Your heart follows your treasure. Number three, our relationship with God in this life will be evident in the way we treat others who are in need. Our relationship with God in this life will be evident in the way that we treat others who are in need. A better indication about where we are with God is not how much money we have. I would say a better indication of where we are with God is how we use our money with regard to those who are in need. How should the older son in Luke 15 have responded to his prodigal brother? He should have shared in the joy of the family over his return, and he should not have put his trust in his resources. He was all about the money. Here's how the Apostle John says it in 1 John 3.17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Implied answer, it cannot. If someone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and does not help, 
The love of God is not in him. James 2:15 and 16 says this, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed. You know, you hear about somebody's problem and you say, Well, I hope that works out for you. I'll be praying for you. But you never do anything to help them. James says this, He who says, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? Do you really care about other people? And by the way, both of these passages, 1 John 3.17 and James 2.15, talks about a brother in need. Okay, so it's one thing to have our heartstrings pulled about all these people who are starving around the world and we should be concerned about them. But the primary way in which we show our love for Christ is by showing love for brothers who are in need. And that, that's what Jesus is calling for. Do we really care about other people? Right? We could flash... A picture up here of a starving child from Africa or India, and our emotions will be piqued. We immediately want to give to help them. You know, bring up the topic of abortion, and Baptists are ready to, to dance and fight for those lives. And to be clear, we should be concerned about the lives of the unborn and the lives of starving children around the world. But can I suggest to you that being concerned about people is easy? especially people that we don't really know. But what about when it comes to someone that you do know? A brother in need, a sister in need in this church. What about when it comes to someone who has a real physical financial need? What about when it comes to one of our missionaries who has a need? That's a good indicator of where our hearts are. Because if we say we have fellowship with Him and we cannot help someone, even though we have the means to do that, what does that say about our love for Christ? Friends, since the time of the fall, there has been a great reversal that those who enjoy God's favor often are mistreated by those who are under God's wrath. But in the next life, we can be sure that it's all going to be sorted out. We don't have to worry about all things being just in this lifetime. That doesn't mean we don't fight for justice. That doesn't mean we don't stand up for justice. But we can be sure that we're not going to win that battle in this lifetime. There will be injustices because we live in a world that is cursed by sin. And it will be cursed by sin until Christ comes to reverse that curse on the world. So we're not going to have a just society God's going to sort everything out in the next life. And so we must live for something else. We must live for people to to have a relationship with God. We must live for obeying God in this lifetime. Showing that we are children of God by living like God wants us to live. By valuing what God wants us to value. So value nothing more in your life than God. And be confident that God exists and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and the resources that You have given to us, Lord. Prick our hearts where our hearts need to be pricked. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Lord, there are uh, just a number of people in our church that are happy and cheerful givers, love to give to Your work and to Your people. So, Lord, we praise You for them. 
but each of us certainly could grow in our area of giving to the needs of the saints and of improving our radar for even seeing these needs. Sometimes we become so cold and callous to people that we have come to know that uh, come to know that that we can minimize their struggle and not really care about their physical needs, not care about their financial need, even though we have the means to help them. And so, Lord, we pray for your grace. Help us to be able to apply these things. Lord, we don't want to we don't want to uh, put a person in a spot where we haven't um, enabled them to defy you by relying on our mercy, but Lord, we don't want to be in a position ourselves where we missed it because we were so judgmental and so lopsided in our thinking that we were never willing to to pass on some money or pass on some some physical help to someone who needed it. Lord, You exist and our Savior is real and He said that that when we give a cup of cold water to a brother, we have effectively given it to Him. We haven't met Christ personally. We haven't met You in Your unshielded glory. But we believe that You are. And one of the ways that we can show that is by showing love to people who are Your children. Lord, provide for the needs of Your people. And use us to do that. Use us to to strengthen the body here. Encourage them to help them to receive the gifts with grace. And when we're in time of need, help us to do the same. Receive those gifts with grace, recognizing that it's a gift from You. Lord, please help us to apply what we've learned tonight to our lives, our family, our church. In Jesus' name, Amen.